Welcome to Skim This. What do nuclear fusion and inflation have in common? Well, this week, they both had major breakthroughs. The good news is, is that this price report that came out was in the right direction. We're sitting down with an expert to get a vibe check on how the economy is doing and what we can expect heading into the new year. We've also got the latest on the implosion of the crypto exchange FTX and the major protests taking place in Peru. And to close things out, we're bringing you the stories the Skim This team can't stop thinking about. From reclaiming the situationship to vagina chips. Stick with us on this one, because we're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First, the World Cup is coming to an end. Messi dances around, turns the corner, gets inside of him, cuts it back, to the far side, and France have their second. The World Cup finals are on Sunday, and it's going to be a showdown between the defending World Cup champion France and Argentina, who just beat Croatia 3-0 in the semifinals. This final match will bring a World Cup full of on- and off-field penalties to a close. When it came to the soccer, it was a tournament full of upset victories. And off the field, controversies over migrant labor, alcohol sales, and LGBTQ rights dominated headlines throughout the event. There was also a major tragedy that sent shockwaves through the games. Last week, 49-year-old sports journalist Grant Wall unexpectedly died while covering the Argentina versus Netherlands game. Initially, there were concerns of foul play, after Wall made headlines in November for being denied entry and then detained for wearing a shirt supporting LGBTQ rights. But this week, his wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, revealed Wall passed away from a ruptured blood vessel. Our thoughts are with her right now, and a memorial for Wall is currently being planned. For our next headline, let's turn to what's going on in Washington. Today's a good day. A day America takes a vital step toward equality, toward liberty and justice, not just for some, but for everyone. On Tuesday, more than 5,000 people gathered on the South Lawn of the White House to celebrate President Biden signing the Respect for Marriage Act. The law, which passed with bipartisan support, doesn't guarantee the right to same-sex marriages in all 50 states. But it does make sure all states recognize same-sex and interracial marriages from outside state lines and the federal benefits that come with marriage. The act also erases a different law from 25 years ago that defined marriage as being between a man and a woman. Marriage is a simple proposition. Who do you love? And will you be loyal to that person you love? It's not more complicated than that. The law recognizes that everyone should have the right to answer those questions for themselves without the government interference. And this act wasn't the only thing keeping lawmakers busy. 
On Wednesday, the House passed a bill to fund the government for one more week, narrowly avoiding an immediate shutdown that would have taken place on Friday. This bill pushes the deadline back to next Friday, December 23rd. Safe to say they're cutting it pretty close before winter break. And speaking of deadlines, it seems like time may be up for FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried. Tonight, the once crown king of crypto, now adorned in handcuffs. On Tuesday, U.S. prosecutors indicted FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried on eight criminal charges, including wire fraud and campaign finance violations. As a reminder, FTX was the third largest crypto exchange in the world before it filed for bankruptcy last month. Bankman-Fried resigned as CEO after news came out that he allegedly moved customer money out of the exchange and into his hedge fund to invest in personal projects. As a result, FTX couldn't pay up when customers wanted to withdraw, and the exchange collapsed. The arrest came as a surprise because SBF was actually expected to testify at a congressional hearing just a few hours later. It seems even SBF didn't expect it. Here he was in an interview with the BBC last week. You're certain that it's once the dust has settled and once all the investigations have happened that you won't be arrested for fraud? I don't think I will be. I don't think that I, uh, I don't think I tried to do anything wrong. As for what we learned from the unsealed indictment, prosecutors say SBF and co-conspirators used tens of millions of dollars of stolen customer money to make illegal political donations to both Democrats and the GOP. Publicly, Bankman-Fried was the Democratic Party's second-largest donor. But since the fallout of FTX, he's also said he quietly donated equal amounts to Republicans. Officials say it was part of Bankman-Fried's strategy to influence the direction of policy and legislation on the crypto industry. SBF is currently being held without bail in the Bahamas and faces extradition to the U.S. in the new year. He could get 115 years in prison if convicted. For our final headline, let's talk about another tense situation happening in Peru. On Wednesday, Peru declared a state of emergency after days of upheaval and violent protests. The protests erupted after the country's president, Pedro Castillo, tried to dissolve Peru's congressional body in what's been called a coup attempt. Castillo has been feuding with the government since he was elected in 2021. And after he tried to dissolve Congress last week, they impeached him. And Castillo got arrested for attempting to create a rebellion. That kicked off angry demonstrations, mainly from his supporters, who thought the impeachment and arrest were a sham. Over the past few days, demonstrators have called for fresh elections, and the protests have turned violent, as at least seven people have reportedly died in clashes with police. Now, this 30-day national emergency declaration suspends the rights of personal security and freedom. Some critics of the move say empowering the military and police could cause more violence and harm the country's economy. And for some, this feels like deja vu. 
because a nationwide state of emergency was last used in the country in the 90s, when a Peruvian revolutionary group called Shining Path terrorized the country. Back in the present, Peru's new president said this week, Peru cannot overflow with blood. And in response to the demonstrations, she's proposed the country move up its general election to late next year. But whether that's soon enough for protesters is still TBD. This week, we got an update on the two eyes economists have been watching for a while now. Inflation and interest rates. On Tuesday, the latest consumer price index came out, which told us that prices are up 7.1% since this time last year, which is actually a sign that inflation seems to be cooling off. Because this rate is slightly down from October's, and down two percentage points since the rate peaked in June at 9.1%. Cue some mild optimism. But soon after we got those numbers, the Fed came in to be the Scrooge to the CPI Santa and announced another interest rate hike on Wednesday. For those keeping score, that's the seventh rate hike in nine months. So given the confusing signals, we wanted to get a vibe check on how the economy is doing and whether we can expect higher prices and rates in 2023. To help, we called up Katherine Edwards, a labor economist and friend of the show, for her take. Katherine, welcome back. I want to start with the CPI data that we got on Tuesday, which shows us the rate of inflation. What did we learn? It was a good report because it showed that price growth has been slowing, which has been the goal of the Federal Reserve since they started raising rates earlier this year. And specifically, is it all prices that are coming down, prices of goods, prices of services? Well, there's some prices that have been coming down that we have been watching for a while because they had been so high to begin with. So things like cars, both new and used, also looking at certain specific goods. Services have not come down as much, but you know the way, the way to think about it is that every price in this report that comes out has its own market that determines it, right? There's a market that determines the price of shampoo. There's a market that determines the price of the haircut that you pay. What the Fed is trying to do is instill through its policy of raising interest rates enough kind of pressure on each of those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of markets to bring demand down just enough to tamper price growth. So some markets, it's going to be more effective than others. So rent, for example, is a really important market in each kind of local area that did not show really a lot of decline in their growth. Rent is still very expensive, as I'm sure a lot of people listening would say, yes, yes, it is. But then certain goods and services have come down. So cars, you know, came down, rent did not. And you mentioned that tricky dance that the Fed has to navigate right now, which is they want people to buy less, but not so much that the economy overall halts. Can inflation continue to drop, as we've been seeing it drop, without a major drop in consumer spending? Yes, it can happen. 
And all of this hinges on the labor market. You know, we need to tampen demand to reduce price growth in the economy. One way that that happens is if a lot of people lose their jobs, but that's not what we want. So we want to reduce demand, but not enough that businesses start laying off workers, not enough that shops in your town have to close down or you start to notice that, you know, businesses in your neighborhood are, are reducing their hours, right? We want to hit the mark because if, if you go too far and prices start coming down because of unemployment, we are in a recession and it's likely a bad one. And so the, the goal is to let's all keep our jobs, but maybe spend a little less. I mean, it's even describing this, like I have a PhD in economics and it's goofy as the words come out of my mouth of like, everybody keep your job, spend a little bit less, maybe on rent. I don't know. Like there's, there's so much that they're trying to do and they have a very blunt instrument. And I, so far, what we heard yesterday was just really good news. Yeah. And I do want to talk about the labor market because I think we've been hearing, I mean, for the past two years or year and a half, it's been a really hot job market. And at the same time, we're also hearing stories about layoffs sweeping specific industries. I'm curious how you're thinking about the labor market, whether it's cooling, whether it's cooling too much, too little, just right. This, I will say, is something that we don't pay equal attention to. There's no status in which no one is losing their job or no one is being laid off or no businesses are closing. It happens all the time. But in a period in which we're worried about a recession coming, we're going to really focus in on those stories, especially when it's kind of like a banner company like Meta. The labor market on the whole is still showing mostly signs of strength. There's cracks around the edges and something like announced layoffs from certain companies are an example of a crack around the edge. But that isn't necessarily indicative of the economy as a whole. Again, if you think back to there is a market that determines the price of everything for these companies, they're also in their own market. And so they can move separate from the direction of the economy, right? Your business can go one way as the economy is going the other. And what we're, what we're worried about is when the economy is pushing layoffs as opposed to maybe a company making bad business decisions in the past five years. What would have to happen for more companies to lay off workers? Because I think everyone wants to know, is this potentially going to happen to me? What would cause lots of layoffs in many industries in many parts of the country would be a broader economic downturn, right? It would be a recession. We have not seen many of the early warning signs of a recession in our labor market, yet the, the labor market remains relatively strong. What I tell people when they ask about recessions is that you should kind of, as a worker, assume that they're always and never going to happen, right? Like you just need to have your plan. What would you do if you'd, someone told you we're going to have a terrible recession in the next 12 months versus what would you do if someone told you there's going to be a recession, but it's in five years? What would change for you? Because there's not much you can do if your industry is hit by large layoffs. The good news is, is that this price report that came out was in the right direction. There has been indication that the Fed will slow rate hikes in response. And so they're going to keep raising rates, but it'll be at a slower pace. And we haven't seen much weakness in the labor market necessarily. It doesn't mean it's a done deal. It just means that they've, they've pulled it off so far. You mentioned the Fed and rate hikes. We're recording this on Wednesday. They're going to be announcing another rate hike today. 
What is the Fed going to be watching for specifically that will help them decide whether or not to keep raising rates next year? Well, this report that came out this week was very important in terms of what specific goods and services saw price deceleration. There's also the causes of inflation as they've unfolded. You know, there were very tangible supply chain problems that contributed to kind of a lopsided demand and supply for very specific goods that contributed to inflation, right? And so that is the chip shortage that affected your ability to buy a car. There were also kind of broader effects like an oil-producing country invading a food-producing country that had international market effects. And then there's just the persistence of demand and the behavior of consumers that after the pandemic, it was like, okay, like, yeah, this is much more than I wanted to pay for a plane ticket, you know, to go home, but I'm going home. I went to that wedding after not going to weddings for two years. I I went to that graduation. (laughs) Yeah, I think I went to like eight weddings, something like that. My cousin went to 11 and I I just thought like, well, yeah, I mean, some demand is just like not falling yet, but we all went through so much and it takes a while for each of us to recover from the pandemic as we experienced it. That could be more of a sentiment, more of a feeling in the economy. They pay attention to that as well because they want to know how consumers are feeling. Confidence in the economy is a big part of what makes economic forecasts better. And that kind of brings me to my last question, which is just how are you feeling about the economy right now? Everyone has the prison of their own point of view. And I'm a labor economist. And my feeling about the economy is please don't mess this up because We don't see wage growth that often. We don't see workers having power in the economy that often. I mean, the story of the last 50 years is one of horribly stagnating wages of workers, you know, really not able to demand much from their job. And we're in this moment in which workers are demanding more for their employers. They're organizing. They're seeing wage growth. And all of this would have been absolutely welcome news if prices weren't increasing at the same time. That's kind of my first reaction, which is very much me as a labor economist looking at the wage charts and being like, no, 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 don't tamp this. We need this. <laughs> like we, we really need more wage growth for, for the working class. The other point of view I have is I'm a little shocked, maybe not shocked, maybe just disappointed that we could have gone through so much as a country and yet changed so little as a result. Like here we are using the Fed to reduce prices in this very roundabout, fuzzy way, hoping we don't cause a recession. And yet all of the things that happened in the pandemic that would have affected workers, it's like they don't exist. We don't have the right to paid sick days in the United States. One in four private sector workers does not have a single paid sick day off. We do not have short-term disability insurance coverage for the vast majority of employees in the United States. And then on top of all of that, we don't have paid family leave and we don't have subsidized childcare. I mean, we went through so much and each of these policies would have been relevant at some point to make a worker better off than they were otherwise in the pandemic. And instead they bore the entire brunt of it. 
as a downer ending. <laughs> I mean, mostly things are good. Like the like the, things are getting better. We're gonna beat inflation. Like yeah, like y'all, we have the tools. Like we know how to get past it. Inflation will be brought under control. It's a once every forty year event. So this isn't gonna be necessarily a perennial problem unless we let it be one. So we're we're gonna bring it down. The question is, you know, how much damage are we gonna do? as a consequence of it? And are we prepared to protect and help people who are affected by it? Well, Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thank you for coming back from leave and always being so thoughtful about these issues. It definitely really helps my understanding. Of course, I'm always happy to be here and always happy to answer questions. This is one of the most impressive scientific feats of the 21st century. On Tuesday, the White House announced a major nuclear fusion breakthrough. The development sounds like it's straight out of a sci-fi movie. And it's a milestone for a clean energy future. So what exactly is nuclear fusion and what was this breakthrough? We're going to do our best Bill Nye and skim it in 60 seconds. A nuclear fusion reaction occurs when two atoms get smashed together to make a new element. During that process, the two atoms lose some mass, and that mass is converted into energy. Shout out to Albert Einstein for helping us figure out that one. Hey, you totally got that right, e equals mc squared. This reaction usually only happens on stars like the sun, but scientists have been trying to recreate the process here on Earth by shooting big lasers at tiny atoms, which it turns out is a very energy-intensive process. In fact, scientists have found that it actually takes more energy to create the reaction than they actually get out of the process in the end. And that brings us to this big breakthrough. U.S. officials announced that scientists in California achieved a net energy gain while producing this reaction. That means that the power released by the fusion of these two atoms was greater than the power of the laser, at about a 3 to 2 ratio. That net energy gain means we're getting closer to actually using nuclear fusion as a viable energy source. Because in the past, the process has been too energy intensive to justify using. This has all got people excited because nuclear fusion has no carbon emissions and there's no radioactive waste. Another perk? Fuel for nuclear fusion is easy to find. The reaction uses heavy hydrogen atoms that are commonly found in ocean water. This all sounds great, but when is nuclear fusion going to be a commercially viable energy source? The short answer is not for decades, because we've got some kinks to work out. The technology is large and expensive, and these lasers pull a lot of electricity from our power grid. So while this week's announcement was one big step for science, it'll be a while before we start seeing nuclear fusion-powered anything. Bill Nye, if you're listening, let us know how we did. And want us to skim a question from the news? Send us an email at audioattheskim.com.
We're going to try something a little different this week and spend some time at the end of this show giving you some insight into the stories we couldn't stop thinking about but kind of didn't know what to do with. We're talking about pop culture, social media, love and dating, weird stories, science stories, art, politics, you name it. The only rules we came up with were that it has to be something you can't get out of your head. And to help me out here, I'm actually talking to our team at The Skim. So first, Alicia, how are you? Hi, I'm doing pretty good. Blake, you're also joining us. Hello, everybody. And Will, hello. Hi, Alex. Thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. Alicia, you would flag something to me called the Tinder Year and Swipe. And I really didn't like seeing people's Spotify raps, but I actually do want to see their Tinder Year and Swipes. I'm curious what this report said about the state of dating. Why did you think it was interesting? Yeah, the state of dating has definitely changed. One thing being that situationships are on the rise on purpose. Tinder said there's been a 49% increase in swipers adding the term to their bios. So we're seeing now that more people are actually, you know, preferring and wanting these types of arrangements. So thinking about not your regular toxic, is this, is this not a relationship hookup type deal? More so, younger users of Tinder are kind of owning the term as a relationship status of a way to have, you know, a relationship without the pressure. And according to Tinder, these situationships are supposed to be more casual, clearly defined, and less messy. It's funny to me because maybe it's just the people I follow on TikTok or Instagram, but there are these influencers, right, who give dating advice. And their advice is always get out of the situationship, end it, respect yourself and end it. You want your situationship to want you when they don't already want you? Move on. Like, that's all I have ever heard is like the toxic situationship. Now it seems like younger users, they're reclaiming it, they're evolving it, they're changing it into something new, kind of like the, I don't know, the pre-dating, pre-relationship phase. Or maybe people just want something that's less complicated, but I don't know. We'll see what the situationship becomes. I've observed situationships in the past that have worked out. I mean, if neither of you are looking for a label, then personally, I don't think that there's anything wrong with just going with the flow. Yeah, will the situationship redeem itself? I don't know. Blake, you flagged an article to me recently about something called a vagina chip. And I'll just say my brain immediately went to the weird vaginal egg thing that got goop in trouble. Tell us what this does. (laughs) Women insert the jade egg in their lady parts to help tone the pelvic floor. How does it help do that? I don't know. I need to start my (laughs) jade egg practice. (laughs) What is a vagina chip? Why are you into this story? And is this something that's going to be scandalous or is this something scientific? Oh, I wish it was going to be scandalous. It is mostly scientific. Basically, I read this article from the New York Times and it was talking about this doctor biologist from Harvard. And he's created like all kinds of organs. That's his gig. But not like human sized organs. They live on these small pieces of like 
silicone chips. He takes tissues from organs and then, yeah, he grows them inside these silicone chips. So he's made lungs, livers, intestines, and now, ladies and gentlemen, a vagina on a chip. He says that he's optimistic that it'll make it easier to test treatments, rather, for a super common infection called bacterial vaginosis, which if it goes untreated, it increases your chances of getting sexually transmitted infections or even cervical cancer if you don't treat it. So it's a really big deal if it does get used in the scientific community. And it would really help researchers like figure out why, you know, this vaginal infection causes cervical cancer or sexually transmitted infections, because right now they don't really know why. So I'm hoping that not only they can find or understand treatments better for bacterial vaginosis, but hopefully like other conditions that affect the vagina. And even if that doesn't happen, like it's signaling to me that researchers are hopefully taking the vagina more seriously, which is a win in my book. Now I get the honor and privilege of navigating the transition between (laughs) talking about vagina chips and then King Charles. There's no delicate way to do that. So we're just (laughs) we're going to we're going to move on. And Will, can you tell me about this kind of I was it a controversial vote? Was it just kind of a regular vote? What happened in Quebec? Harry and Meghan aren't the only ones leaving the royal family behind. This has been a trend for a while. So in Quebec, lawmakers are required to swear an oath to the monarch of the United Kingdom as Canada is one of the 14 Commonwealth nations. Over the years, multiple times, lawmakers have tried to get rid of this oath. They don't feel like it's representative of a modern Canada and their aspirations, but it just hasn't really been popular. Mm. Since the Queen's passing in September, there have been a lot of big changes. So a couple of local lawmakers tried the vote again, and it went through. So now you don't have to swear allegiance to the UK monarch any longer. You can make it optional. In the province of Quebec only. Did they also watch the Harry and Meghan Netflix documentary? And is that what inspired the vote? Because the timing seems to line up. The timing does seem to line up. It seems like this could be a larger rebuke of the monarchy as a whole. Other Commonwealth nations have also said they are looking to cut ties as well. Harry and Meghan aren't the only ones who have issues with the firm. To see this institutional gaslighting. I wasn't being thrown to the wolves. I was being fed to the wolves. I'll just end by saying really random things have been on my mind this week. But one that's kind of stuck with me is that Instagram started launching something called Candid Stories on Tuesday. They're rolling it out in South Africa, I believe. And my first thought was Instagram is literally so jealous of other social media platforms like Be Real and TikTok. And instead of beating those apps or joining them, they're just copying and pasting them. What do you guys think about this? Are you getting rid of Be Real? Are you down for Instagram to do this? Hell no. Where is the innovation? Where is the innovation? That is my question. I like Be Real, but you will only see me being real on Be Real. TikTok has a version of Be Real as well. I couldn't handle a third version. If you really want to see me at my most authentic, like, let's get coffee. Personally, for me, like I go to Instagram, it, I know it's a performance and that is OK. I'm not trying to be real on Instagram. Agreed. Instagram, I just think it's, it's doing too much. OK, first we were photos, then we were videos. Now we're reels. Now it, it's everything. 
I actually think Instagram was at its peak when it was all just the sepia filter. Is that the, that's the yellow one, right? It was all like the weird yellow filter or the black and white photos. Bring back the Valencia filter. I really want Instagram to be a version of photo booth that used to be on Mac computers. That would be my ideal use of Instagram. So Mark Zuckerberg, if you're listening, you're welcome. If you guys were the inventors of Facebook, you'd have invented Facebook. Okay. Alicia, Will, Blake, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Alicia Key. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next week. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcast. It's called 9 to 5-ish, and it's where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. You can find it wherever you're already listening to us.